Welcome to this endo life. I'm Jessica Duffin. I'm an endo warrior, an endo health coach, and this podcast is all about living and thriving with endometriosis. As always, this podcast is here for educational purposes only. Please consult your medical practitioner before making any nutritional changes or bringing in any supplements. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to give a shout out to my lovely sponsors at BU. And I wanted to tell you about their new bath bombs, which are naturally made and contain beautiful essential oils. And their peppermint and eucalyptus essential oils um, bath bomb is doing so well right now with endometriosis community. They're getting loads of feedback about it. And, you know, if you love the patches themselves you're going to love the bath bombs because essentially it's <laughs> the patch in a bath bomb um so you know if you're on your period or if you're in pain you could have a bath with some of the bath bombs or one of them I don't know you could have multiple if you want um and then yeah get out the bath maybe rub in some cbd balm and put your patch on top, which is um, what a lot of people are feeding back that they're doing. So um, I would love to do that, but um, I don't have a bath, so I can't. But if you have a bath, um, then, you know, I think these new bath bombs could be a lovely way to help alleviate some of your pain. So if you'd like to check them out, you can go to BU, which is buonline.co.uk, And you can also order them from anywhere in the world on cultbeauty.co.uk and they deliver worldwide. So before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to give a shout out to the lovely girls at Semaine. They are two sisters with endometriosis. They've been on the show before and they founded Semaine, which is a supplement company for people with periods to originally their first supplement was to aid with PMS and period pain. And I know that it is a lifesaver for so many people with endometriosis and painful periods. I absolutely love that supplement. It's really helped me when I've had to kind of follow protocols for SIBO or, you know, I've had a stressful time and I've been worried about my period. I've been able to avoid a fare with that supplement and they've always been so kind and um, kindly sent me sent me them when I when I've needed them. And now they've come out with a new supplement called the Daily, and it is a hormone balancing supplement, which is designed to help with healthy skin, stable mood, fewer cravings in your luteal phase, blood sugar balance. And they recently gifted it to me. Honestly, I said this to my client the other day. My blood sugar levels have never felt so stable as they did when I was taking that day, daily supplement. As you guys know, I I work very hard to stabilize my blood sugar levels because that will keep inflammation down and it also ensures that you have healthy balanced hormones. It's, it's really, really key. 
And I have a history of having really unstable blood sugar. Originally growing up, it was because of my eating disorder. But then in later years, it was much more down to firstly following a vegan diet when I didn't understand how to build my plate, a healthy blood sugar balancing plate. And secondly, because of my microbiome and my microbiome because of SIBO is built to actually extract more glucose from my food and cause blood sugar instability. This is actually a really key piece of blood sugar. If your blood sugar is resisting all of the strategies you're trying, that is a massive clue that your microbiome is affecting the way that your blood sugar is is being controlled in your body. So we need to work on that, work on your gut. And mine has improved, mine has improved massively, but I still react much more um, erratically than someone else would to blood sugar fluctuations. And I couldn't believe the difference. It was like I had a whole month of like stable blood sugar. It was incredible. And as a result, I had much more of a healthier cycle. I felt a lot more satisfied. I had less food cravings. I just felt a lot more stable in energy. So I'm a really big fan of this. And as I said, blood sugar is a huge piece to managing your hormones, hence why blood sugar is such a big part of their their supplement. So the girls have kindly given me a discount code for you guys. It will get you 20% off your first um, order, whether that's the daily or the PMS and Pira support capsules. And the code is ENDOLIFE, one word, all caps. So E-N-D-O-L-I-F-E. And that code is valid for the next six months, I believe. So you can use it at any time. Um, So let me know how you get on with them. I'd love to hear if you find them as amazing as I did. And I hope that they bring you a happier and healthier cycle and period. Okay, so this is the last in my IG live series for Endometriosis Awareness Month. I hope that you have found this series um, helpful and you've been able to submit your questions if you had any. Um, so this final Q&A was all about the endobelly and gut health with endometriosis. And I honestly got so many questions for this one. I think I got about 30 questions. So I tried to answer as many as I could. Um, I grouped a few together because a lot of them were very similar or the answers were relevant to, you know, the same question to each question. So these are the questions that I answer in the episode. Is core muscle dysfunction a reason for bloating? Why is endobelly still happening after a total hysterectomy? What to do if you can't get SIBO to a manageable level? Do you have any must-dos for managing endo and SIBO? How to tame SIBO? What is my, why is my endobelly constant no matter what I eat? Why do I only get bloated with carbs? And finally, why am I still bloated even though I take supplements, work out and lead a healthy lifestyle? So I do really recommend that even if you listen through, even if you've just listened through to those questions, you're like, mm, they don't really apply to me. If you have any gut health issues or any bloating or just, you know, the classic endobelly, it's worth listening to this episode um, because so much of what I say is going to be relevant to everyone listening, even if that question, the questions aren't specific to you. Um, have a listen, you'll understand why, but I'm giving you some of the core principles for 
managing and healing endo belly in the episode. So it's, you know, it's applicable for everyone. Okay, let's get to the show. Let's get started. I'm going to start with a really quick answer um, and quick question. So is core muscle dysfunction a reason for bloating? Yes, it it can be. Um, Plus any pelvic floor um, issues, diastasis recti, I don't know if I'm saying that right, where the abdominal muscles separate, um, adhesions, they can all contribute to like IBS issues. Um, I mean, pelvic floor dysfunction may not really lead to bloating. It potentially could. You could talk to a pelvic floor physiotherapist about that, but it would certainly, uh, could certainly contribute to like pain with bowel movements, urgency, constipation, diarrhea. So definitely structural issues, muscular issues, nerve issues that can all contribute to um these kind of endo belly issues. Uh, there is a condition. I looked through my course uh, with Dr. Alison Seebecker to try and find it, and I, I couldn't find it. I mean, there were it's there was like I don't know 60, 70 hours of material there. Um, but there is a there is a condition that the the stomach expands too much and I just couldn't I can't remember what it's called I tried googling it it's a very obvious (laughs) obvious name like I don't know like intestine expansion disorder it's really really straightforward and for some reason it's just not in my mind today but so that that might be a factor but um, in short yes if there's a structural muscular thing going on it can certainly be contributing to your symptoms um so the next question is, endo belly is still happening after a total hysterectomy. And I really kind of want to group in with this answer. Anyone who is struggling with endo belly after endo surgery as well. Okay, so some of the answers in here are going to be relevant for you guys. So there are three, I mean, look, there are a n- number of reasons that you could be having endo belly, but I've narrowed this down to three likely scenarios with this situation. So reason one is that it was never the endo belly. It was never, sorry, it was never the endo causing the bloating directly in the first place. Now you hear me say this over and over again. The endo belly is rarely um, caused by endometriosis solely or directly. Um, Now, if you are having bloating with your period, bloating with a pain flare, bloating with ovulation, yes, the inflammation from the endometriosis lesions are particularly active, you know, during a flare, during your period, during ovulation, because high estrogen levels at that point, um, that could be, that inflammation could be contributing to some bloating. Um, Also, estrogen levels around ovulation and progesterone levels towards your period as well. They create um, changes in water retention. um, And so that can be causing uh, some bloating too. Um, And ovulation actually does have an impact on the gut dysbiosis that could be contributing to um, some bloating too. Um, But there, you know, some of the bloating could be, some of the endobelly could be caused by inflammation from the endometriosis. Um, 
But especially in this case, um, I don't think this was your sole, your sole kind of culprit. And normally there are a handful of reasons contributing to someone's endo belly, right? But as I say over and over again, it's not really just because of the endo. Um, so following on from this, people with endo have been shown to have gut dysbiosis. That's an imbalance with the bacteria in the gut. Um, and that can cause regular bloating. It can cause IBS issues. It can cause reactions to foods. Um, we also know that people with endo have a higher prevalence of SIBO um, and small intestine bacterial overgrowth, which is an overgrowth of bacteria in the, in the small intestine. Um, and the signature symptom from that is bloating. Um, we also know that people with endo have uh, likely have a deficient migration motor complex, which is the motility in the small intestine, which cleans out the small intestine. Um, that ends up causing um, endometriosis, uh, endometriosis, SIBO. Um, there's also other factors that can affect motility with endometriosis, not just in the small intestine, but in the large intestine. Um, and that can include things like uh, POTS, MCAS, hyperthyroidism. Um, there's also things to consider like celiac disease. Um, celiac disease is associated with endometriosis too, and that may cause bloating, um, IBS-like symptoms and stuff like that. And going back to the hypothyroidism, we have a higher prevalence of that, and that can slow down motility, which can then cause bloating. So there's quite a lot of things to consider, but rather than being overwhelmed by that, I would start with what we call first-line therapies and gut healing. Um, and those are like foundational key changes that we can make to improve overall gut health, improve the function of the gut, and improve the microbiome. And see if you can get an imp any improvement there. And if not, you could move on to second-line therapies, which are more advanced therapies. Um, and you could also test for SIBO. Um, and if you wanted to, you could do something called a GI map if you had the budget for that. Um, which will show you any microbiome imbalances. Um, but I would probably check the SIBO test first before you do the GI map because if, if you're on a budget. Because really, if you're treating the SIBO, for the most part, most of the treatments would be treating the large intestine as well, which is where gut dysbiosis would be. Um, so... I have those second line and first line strategies in um, my podcast. So you could go through different endo belly um, episodes in the podcast. Um, I have an entire module on that in my course that's out at the moment, Live and Thrive with Endo, their foundations. I do have an entire course dedicated to the endo belly. Um, and, but that's not out at the moment. It's not going to be out until the end of the year. Um, and of course, I have like first and second line strategies for supporting the endo belly littered throughout my social media. But, um, you know, if you can afford if you can afford to get like a protocol, then I would look at the course, uh, Live and Private Endo, the course, because that has the module, a really great module in it. But if you're looking for free resources, I would go to the podcast um, and there are two episodes one is dedicated to first line therapists and one is dedicated to second line therapists and then I also have other kind of endo belly focused tips and strategies littered throughout the podcast just look for anything with endo belly reason two 
Um, so the second reason is that we know a hysterectomy is not a cure for endometriosis. So there's a chance that there are still lesions um, causing inflammation in the pelvic area and in the abdominal area that could be contributing to the swelling that you're seeing. Um, as I mentioned, I don't believe that endometriosis itself is a direct or sole cause for such significant bloating, but if there is endo still there, it could certainly be playing a role in that, right? Reason three, um, we know that studies have shown adhesion formation um, in 50 to 100% of abdominal surgery patients. Um, and if it's a more advanced surgery like uh, a hysterectomy or um, a cesarean, then it's closer to 80 to 100%. So it's quite reasonable to suspect that you have adhesions. Now, the issue with adhesions is that they can stick to intestines or distort the abdomen in such a way that they actually cause uh, functional problems with the gut that can lead to things like bloating, constipation, um, gas retention, pockets of air, diarrhea, all of these things. And over time can lead to small intestine bacterial overgrowth, which, as I said earlier, the signature symptom is bloating. So, um, you know, you might want to get assessed for adhesions um, and to get tested for SIBO and, and intestinal methanogen overgrowth, which is, which is what we used to call methane type SIBO but it's now a condition in its own kind of right um, the treatment is exactly the same as it always was but it's just got a new name because it, it doesn't just occur in the small intestine it tends to occur throughout the small and large intestine um, so that's where I would focus right first and second line therapies rule out SIBO if you can afford to do so and get those adhesions checked um, Okay, so I'm trying to answer two, three questions in this next um, answer. So the questions that I'm trying to answer here are, what do you do if you can't get SIBO to a manageable level? I've tried everything. And do you have any must-dos to manage endo and SIBO? My symptoms are worse than ever. And then um, how to tame SIBO? So those are three questions. I've kind of geared this to SIBO with endo rub than must-haves for endo because that is really such a huge separate conversation that just I don't really have time to address in this live but if you kind of go back through the lives I've done all month long those are my go-tos for endo management including today's um and tomorrow night I am doing a free masterclass on my five key pillars of healing with endometriosis, like my absolute must-dos. Um, there are so many methods for managing endo, but these are like my key pillars. So if you want to come to that free masterclass, um, you can just sign up. The link is in my bio. If you can't attend live, just sign up anyway and I'll email you the recording. So for the endo part of your question, that is going to be in that masterclass. Um, but because there's so many SIBO questions, I'm going to be really focusing on SIBO here. So um, in regards to the, in regards to kind of those must-dos, these are my must-dos, right, for SIBO. And I'm hoping that this helps in case, I'm hoping this helps with Joe, who was like, I've tried everything for SIBO um, because I, I want 
Joan, I want you to listen out to see whether actually some of these things you didn't do or maybe you were misinformed by whoever you were working with or you weren't given quite the right treatment. So uh, this is not always must-dos, but more like mm, things you have to be aware of, right? So you will need multiple rounds. Um, on average, patients need at least three rounds and six months of treatment. Uh, that, that kind of works out to be six months of treatment. Um, this is an easy slash average case, uh, but many will need more rounds. I think I did 10. I think I did 10 rounds. Um, and these, these cases, these tough cases, um, will need about a year. Multiple rounds need about a year. Um, sometimes a little bit longer, but really, if you're not, if you haven't really got that all clear by a year, I'm, I'm hesitant to con continue doing that treatment because the damage to the microbiome could be quite extensive by that point to kind of go beyond the year. So at that point, I would be like, right, this is not shifting. We need to look into more advanced, re like we need to look deeper into why this is not shifting if it hasn't shifted by that 12 month mark but that's like with with a tough case we don't tend to see like anything really shifting any progress until that six month mark and then the majority of the progress occurs between the six and the 12 month mark basically um so don't just try one round of treatment and think it doesn't work if someone is telling you you can get it cleared in one round of treatment I don't know what to say. They're wrong. <laughs> like, if if you get it done in one treatment, you've definitely got a negative test, and you've also checked for hydrogen sulfide, and you've got a negative test if you can get a hold of that. It's only available in America at the moment. Um, then amazing, right? But that is very very rare that that happens. I ha I have had one client who cleared in. I think it was two rounds, um, and I was like, this is a miracle. Like, praise Jesus. Like, it was amazing. But um, it's very very rare. Okay, so um, my next kind of go must have is, must do is, um, or must know, right? That's the right word. Uh, the treatment options we use are antimicrobials, antibiotics, and the elemental diet. We might use all three. We might just use one. Um, the elemental diet is not a diet. It's a liquid formula that is a treatment that you are only drinking that liquid formula for two weeks to three weeks. Um, and it starves the bacteria, but feeds you. Um, diet, so low FODMAP diet, SIBO biphasic diet, all of the diets that can be used with SIBO are not treatment. So this is like my must note, a diet is not a treatment. It is, it suppresses the SIBO a bit. Um, it's, can help starve the SIBO a little bit. It can suppress symptoms, but it is not a treatment. And so I've actually kind of wrangled another answer into this um, from another question, which was, how do I control my, how do I manage SIBO with diet? It's not a great idea to only be treating your SIBO with diet. You're just going to be there for potentially ever because it's not killing the SIBO so you're just going to be living a restricted life with a C and every time you try to expand off that diet you can't you can't fully expand out so it's really more effective to use a diet in conjunction with a SIBO treatment 
because you're then killing the SIBO, you're suppressing your symptoms with the diet, and then um, there's an end in sight, right? I hopefully you'll be two, you'll be uh, the one third that is um, not not chronic, two thirds are chronic, um, and so you will get to you know the all clear. Um, if you stay on a SIBO diet in the long term, that's actually going to do more damage to your gut. And so I really don't recommend that. Um, in some extreme cases, you might do a SIBO diet for a little while before you start the treatment, because for some reason you can't start the treatment and you just need to get symptoms under control. But I really don't recommend doing that on for long term or without a practitioner to support you to make sure you're getting the right nutrients or for a long time about taking on treatment. Um, okay, so my next, uh, oh, oh, actually I'll, I'll answer that bit in a minute. Um, the next must know is, or must do is take the right and high doses of treatments and use the right types for the gases. So I trained with Dr. Alison Seebecker and then Dr. Narala Jacoby. Um, and Dr. Alison Seebecker is like well a world leading doctor, if not really alongside Dr. Mark Pimentel, a lead, you know, the leading SIBO doctor um, in terms of treatment approaches. And she has treated thousands of patients and has tried and tested hundreds of products. And um, as a result, she's determined like the most effective protocols um, that she's seen and the, you know, the most effective doses and brands. And so that is the protocol that I adhere to. Sometimes I, you know, Dr. Narala Jacoby, for the most part uses that too, but she also has a couple of others that she uses. And sometimes I'll use those if I'm finding that we're not making progress um, because everyone responds differently. Um, so I'm only going to kind of give you some examples here because I'm hesitant to give all of the exact doses and the protocols because I don't want someone to listen to this and think, oh, I'm going to go and treat my SIBO now because without a practitioner or at least a course to guide you, that's really pretty risky. Um, you could waste a lot of money because you might not be doing it correctly. And there are many other things that go into SIBO treatment. These are just kind of the, the core pieces. So I really recommend that you work with a practitioner or um, you, you take a course. Um, so for example, for hydrogen, you would use oregano, berberine, or neem, and you would use two of those together. Um, and it's also, like I said, about the product and the strength. So, for example, with oregano, we use Biotics ADP um, at six pills a day, split across three doses. Um, and it, especially with oregano, it's really not just about getting any oregano supplement um, because some of them um are not are not quite right can be quite harsh for the stomach not the right strength um and then if it's hydrogen SIBO uh that's just an example right so there's I've got specific brands for berberine neem allison atrantil and what I will say is if you want to know all of this in detail I have an episode where Dr. Seebecker and I literally go through all of these doses so you can have a listen to that episode um, but it's a lot to talk through um, in half an hour live, which I have eight minutes left of. Um, and so 
if there's hydrogen SIBO with intestinal methanogen overgrowth, um, or it's just intestinal methanogen overgrowth on its own, we combine one of the hydrogen treatments, so, uh, so oregano, neem, or berberine, with allicin or antrantil. And again, they have very specific doses and brands. So for example, antrantil, uh, we use, um, oh, antrantil, oh, well, yeah, that's fine. I'll say antrantil. We use six pills a day again. Um, so, and especially with allicin, you can't just use any garlic extract. Allicin's an extract of garlic but you don't want to just use any brand because some of them still contain FODMAPs, which would be feeding the SIBO. So that can cause more reactions than, than actually help him. If it's hydrogen SIBO, uh, hydrogen sulfide SIBO, we don't have a large number of treatments for that yet. We're, we're kind of in the process of developing those now um, and kind of investigating them now but for example we do know that high dose oregano can work for some although not for others but it, it generally works at much much higher doses so in the beginning of the protocol you're on like 15 pills a day of the um biotics adp so it's really about what brand are you using what doses are you using how regularly you're using them how long you're using them for right we want to be four to six weeks at the very max but at five weeks we tend to see resistance developing and so we, we don't want that to happen because your backslide right the SIBO can start to grow back um Antibiotics need to be 10 to 14 days and at the studied doses. So, for example, studied doses for rifaximin include 550 milligrams three times a day for two weeks. Um, and the most effective antibiotics are rifaximin alone or rifaximin with neomycin or metronidazole. But there's always rifaximin in the picture. But there are other um, antibiotics you can use in place if you can't get hold of those ones. But those are the most effective ones that we know from the research at the moment. And there are a couple floating around for hydrogen sulfide that people are um, kind of looking into and some doctors are liking them, but typically at the moment, uh, rifaximin with those two are the, the leaders. Um, if you've just got hydrogen on its own, rifaximin is sufficient. Just a reminder that this episode is sponsored by BU. These natural patches last for 12 hours, so they bring you prolonged relief and can begin working on relaxing your muscles before the pain kicks in, so you're prepared even if your period comes during the middle of the day. Some people even find that wearing them a night before their period can really help soothe the inflammation in the area. To shop, just head to link in my show notes. This is a huge one. Prevention of relapse is a must. And, you know, unfortunately, if you're not doing the prevention of relapse, it's almost a waste of your time doing the treatment. So prevention of relapse is a three to six month period post eradication of SIBO. So you've got the all clear. And because SIBO, because there's normally a root cause like a motility problem, with SIBO, you need to be investigating what is your root cause. Why did you get SIBO in the first place to prevent it coming back? But whilst you're doing that, this three to six month period is really crucial because this is when we see a lot of relapsing and so uh, the SIBO coming back. And so the three to six month period is going to prevent that. and It's going to prolong your time in remission. Now, unfortunately, two thirds of people with SIBO are chronic. And so at some point, it's likely we're going to relapse. But if you can investigate your root cause and solve your root cause, then you're not going to relapse, right? Or you might relapse once, but then you've solved 
then you've sold it and you don't relapse again. Um, but we just want to prolong that time that you're in remission for as long as possible. And it might be a number of years, right? So um, this prevention of relapse is kind of, this period of time is stopping a very quick relapse. So the, there are three key strategies during this time. A prokinetic. A prokinetic stimulates the migrating motor complex in the small intestine. It is the housekeeping of the small intestine. It keeps it clear from SIBO building back up. Um, and so a, prom, a prokinetic is a pharmaceutical drug or a um, herbal supplement that will stimulate that. So that's essential. Having one of those is essential. Um, the next essential is meal space and the overnight fasting. So the overnight fasting is the most important thing. That's a 12-hour fast overnight, so from, say, 8 p.m. to 8 a.m., and it gives the migrating road complex a chance to really kick in overnight when it's the most active. And then you can also do um, four hours between meals. That's kind of been studied as the most effective um, minimum amount of time that's most effective, and that's to allow the migrating motor complex to kick in between meals. Um, if you have low blood sugar issues or you have a history of an eating disorder, don't worry about the meal spacing during the day and just try to do the overnight fast. Um, if you can't do 12 hours, do 10. You know, if you can't do 10, do eight, whatever you can get in. Um, the final piece is a reduced carbohydrate slash fiber diet. Now, this doesn't have to be a really strict one, like, for example, the biphasic diet. It could be a very low-key one, like the paleo diet, right? Paleo diet removes beans and grains, so it's already a lower carbohydrate diet and a lower fiber diet could be um, the FODMAP light or the low FODMAP diet. There are quite a few others as well, GAPS diet. Um, the idea is that you expand to tolerance as quickly as you can. So as long as you're tolerating, you're not reacting to a food, right? You're not getting a lot of bloating. Um, you're not getting return of your symptoms. Then you can just keep adding these things into your diet. But the idea is that we're just not if there's any SIBO that's trying to fight its way back, we're not giving, adding fuel to the fire. But the whole time during this prevention of relapse, we're trying to expand the diet to get as normal as possible by the time you move out of the prevention of relapse phase. Now, those are the three core ones, um, but there are kind of add-on supportive methods, and that would be um, ensuring that you have these protective mechanisms in, in the gut. So, um, sufficient stomach acid and digestive enzymes and bile, which help to keep bacteria down, bacteria that's coming in through the mouth and could be contributing to SIBO development if you don't have a migrating motor complex that's not working very well. And people, actually I'll say that bit in a minute, but so we tend to do a lot of stomach acid support and digestive enzyme support and bile support, so things like bitters, maybe some hydrochloric acid, um, digestive enzymes taken orally, things like that. Um, we also do body work. So adhesion work um, is very important. Abdominal massage, breaking down adhesions and vagus nerve support, because if the vagus nerve is not functioning properly, that's going to really affect motility. It's going to affect the, the gut overall. Now, in Dr. Seebecker's protocol, those things are quite like supportive, whereas with endometriosis, I think they're essential because with endometriosis, we typically have lower levels of stomach acid and digestive enzymes because stress depletes them. So just chronic pain and chronic fatigue. We typically have adhesions, right? And we typically have a, a, a vagus nerve dysfunction. So 
all of those things I find to be really essential in the prevention of relapse phase for people with endometriosis and SIBO. Um, treatment breaks between treatment rounds should not be more than for more than two weeks because that actually, uh, after two weeks, we tend to see quite significant backsliding. So basically the SIBO growing back and then you lose the progress that you've made. And you always need to include a prokinetic during those treatment breaks. So those are like my absolute must knows, must do's. Um, and so Joe, you said I've tried everything. Um, so following on from that piece, I kind of, I would love you to listen to what I just said and, and see like, okay, did I cover all of that? I would really recommend listening to my interview with Dr. Becker where we talk about the, the protocols. Um, and um, some of the, her, like some of the supplements that you listed, guys, I'm just stretching like my, my leg whilst I'm talking. So I might look a bit weird, but my hips are really hurting. Um, some of the treatments that you took, like the herbs, I'm not entirely convinced by. We've been warned about this from Dr. Seebeck and a couple of other doctors. There are some treatments, some brands that offer herbal complexes. They even have like SIBO in the name, but they're not at high enough doses at all or um, the recommended recommended dose that you take a day is just really low it's just not going to shift the SIBO so um I have people come to me who um you know through no fault of the practitioner's own they've given my clients prior to working with me a round of something like a combination herbal formula that has been advertised as being used for SIBO and they've expected it to work. And then my clients come to me and they're like, I've still got SIBO. And I, I look at what they've taken, I'm like, okay, <laughs> that explains why. Um, so, Joe, that's just something to keep in mind. Um, uh, also, Joe, I know you said you tried pro, um, procalopride as a prokinetic and it didn't work for you. I can't quite remember why. So you were on ibogast. Um, you could try erythromycin, low-dose erythromycin. Um, that's like the next strongest to procalopride if you can't tolerate procalopride. Underneath that is um, low-dose naltrexone. Um, the natural formulas, natural prokinetic formulas are usually not strong enough. So if you're going to take something like ibrogast, then you need to kind of combine it with either the low-dose naltrexone, which is LDN for short, or with another natural prokinetic like ginger a thousand milligrams um because typically we don't see the natural ones to be strong enough which sucks but I find, unfortunately it's the reality of it um adhesion work i know you're seeing a public for physiotherapist but if you could afford something like clear passage then that would be amazing because they're like the the gold standard for breaking down adhesions that could be contributing to um SIBO not clearing um, or if you've got a small bowel obstruction or any other obstruction um, they can assist you with that if you can't afford clear passage looking for practitioners who do adhesion work um, the elemental diet it doesn't look like you've tried that I'm not sure if there's a reason why you haven't tried it but we do use that in really tough cases or cases where the numbers are really high like the parts per million are really high um, I'm just going to move this desk so I can stretch more because my hips are caning me for some reason. Um, so, yeah, the elemental diet could be a really good option for you if, you know, you don't have a history of an eating disorder. Um, if you have blood sugar dysregularity, 
um, dysregulation, then I would look at using Dr. Ruscio's low-carb one because it's not going to spike your blood sugar in the same way. Um, I also have a couple of podcasts on using the elemental diet and how to do it, like in a just practical tips and if you've got blood sugar dysregulation, what you can do. Um, if you have been self-treating through like what you've learned online, you could potentially work with a practitioner. Um, I would really recommend working with a practitioner who's trained with Dr. Seebecker because she does currently provide the most comprehensive um, training course on SIBO in the world. Um, vagus nerve work, really, really important, or any brain retraining, nerve retraining. Um, so there's Nerva now, which is an app which has had huge success for treating tough IBS cases, um, including SIBO cases, um, because most of IBS and SIBO is what we're learning now. Um, so Nerva is a hypnotherapy app that works really well for retraining the gut-brain connection that can improve motility in the migrating motor complex um, and just any symptoms of IBS. Um, there's also the Gupta program and there is another one called it's on the tip of my tongue. It's three words, something nerve. It's something like brain retraining nerve program, but it's not that. Um, nerve is an app, Lucy. It's a 12-week app program, and it's, it's really, really incredible. Um, you have to be committed to it, though. You have to do it every single day for the effects to work. Um, I can't remember the name of this program, but if you look at SIBO SOS, they have an interview with the woman who runs this program and, and you'll know because it's like brain retraining program something like you'll 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 realize what it is um also um discover your root cause um you know it sounds like joe i don't know how long you've been treating but like you know there could be a root cause that is preventing you from progressing mold candida um, H. pylori, those can both, those can all make it harder to progress with SIBO. Um, test your motility, test your small intestine and your large intestine. There is something called the barium swallow, which will test motility. If your motility is really severely impaired, then that could actually be having an impact on how far you can get with your SIBO treatment. Um, test for obstructions, they can do certain x-rays. Um, to look for obstructions in the small intestine and the large intestine. As I said, to try clear passage or something similar to treat adhesions. And if you can't clear it, you know, if you really can't clear it, there are some cases where you're chronic, but you never actually you never actually have that time in remission. And so what we want to do is just try to get your SIBO to a place where it's low. Um, and you also have symptoms that aren't affecting your daily life. Um, and, you know, immunoglobulins, uh, especially the ones by Dr. Ruscio, they've been found in many people to be really helpful for chronic management cases. Um, but um, without kind of working with you one-on-one -on -one or working with a practitioner, it's going to be really hard for me to say, like, how you could manage it long term um in my courses I, I do offer in my endo protocol i do offer long term like a whole a module on how to manage tough SIBO and long-term SIBO but as i said that the endo belly protocol is not out at the moment um so what are those you just mentioned um what are sorry what are what like 
I just mentioned because um, I'm, I'm not sure when you wrote that. Um, so, you know, it might be that you have to find what works for your symptoms. And there are many people who live well with chronic SIBO and whose SIBO is currently, you know, active, but they don't have significant symptoms. Um, oh, immunoglobulins. Um, yes, immunoglobulins can be really effective. And Dr. Rue shows ones. Um, Dr. Seebecker swears by. She, Dr. Seebecker has chronic SIBO, like me. I've got chronic SIBO. I have, you know, I have SIBO right now, but it's not it's not having a huge impact on my life. I, I don't take immunoglobulins because um, I just take a lot of other stuff already. Um, so, but Dr. Seebecker swears by them. Um, that's not going to be like the only thing, you know. There might be certain things that you know are, I can eat quite an expansive diet now. I can probably eat more expansively than I've ever been able to eat in my whole life. But there are certain things like I can eat, you know, 100, 150 grams of sweet potato, and I'm good. If I have more than that, I really blow. Um, you know, crisps, like starch, like crisps, like starchy potato really gets to me. So I can have potato, but it's about how much I'm having, so, you know, certain things like that. Um, so I'm going to quickly answer now before we wrap up three questions in one. So the questions I'm answering are, my endo belly is constant no matter what I do or don't eat. I only get bloated when I eat carbs. I am taking so many supplements, working out, have a healthy lifestyle, and I'm still bloated. So um, with all of these, an elimination phase protocol to determine what exactly is currently irritating you could be the next kind of uh, next strategy if you haven't tried that already. And an elim elimination phase is the most effective way to... Um, check for intolerances and sensitivities, not allergies. Allergies are different. That is a test that's an IgE test. And an allergy is something that, you know, very, very severe, very dangerous reaction. Intolerances and sensitivities, we don't actually yet have a gold standard test that is really, really accurate. So at the moment, the gold standard is an elimination diet. It should only last four weeks at the very most. And then you reintroduce each food one by one to test your response. Um, I, you know, I take... If the client doesn't have a history of an eating disorder, if we think it's necessary, we will do that. So, you know, I in my course, I give people that option if they want to do it, or if my clients, so I give them that option if it's appropriate. Um, so there is a standard one. It rules out like the most common intolerances and allergens. But if you are having quite extensive like gut issues, you might need to do something like a low FODMAP, which is essentially an elimination diet, but includes a reintroduction phase. Um, I wouldn't always go to that first because it may not be necessary. Um, now, if SIBO is present, an elimination phase or the low FODMAP diet may not be enough to um, identify what's triggering things because with SIBO, it eats every time you eat. So it will feel like you're being triggered all the time. Um, now, related to that carb piece, um, reacting to carbs is a sign of SIBO, but it's also a sign of like general dysbiosis because, you know, bacteria eat carbs. Um, they eat fiber and they eat carbs. That's their favorite food. And it depends on the type of bacteria that you have an overgrowth of, whether you've got SIBO or dysbiosis, 
um, that will kind of determine what it likes to eat the most. So for one client with SIBO, they might find that um, oats really bother them. And another client might find that, um, that was a bad example, they might find like cruciferous vegetables really bother them, whereas another client might find that starchy foods like bread and potatoes really bother them. That seems to be me. Um, so if you're reacting to carbs, I would ask like what types of carbs because um, veggies are carbs um, and, um, you know, it, do you mean carbs like pasta and bread? That's like rice, that's more starches. Or do you mean things like um, vegetables um, or beans? Um, the other thing is, are you also talking about gluten-based carbs? Because we do have a higher prevalence of celiac disease in our community. So you might want to test for that. Um, if you're reacting to carbs like starches and sugars, um, it could also indicate candida. Uh, I don't think we really have any stats on candida with endometriosis. Um, we do have some sort of clinical evidence that candida can contribute to um, pelvic pain, but I don't think we have any actual research on the prevalence of SIBO within the endometriosis community, whereas we do on SIBO. I don't think we have any research on candida, the prevalence of candida with endometriosis, but we do have it for SIBO. Um, so, you know, to the person reacting to carbs, you could try an elimination diet. You might also just want to test for SIBO and rule that out um, and rule out celiac disease if it's gluten-based products. Um, with all of these scenarios, I mean, look, you could live a really healthy lifestyle um, take all of the supplements, work out. But if it's if there's something going on in the gut directly, whether it's SIBO, whether it's dysbiosis, you're not that's not gonna that's not gonna do it. If you just now first line therapies for gut, uh for gut healing are things like um eating a healthy diet, removing processed foods, caffeine, alcohol, sugars, like well not entirely, but um the kind of first port of call um is to literally from i can't remember what the governing body is but like the dietitian governing body i can't remember the first port of call for people who get like gi symptoms is to change your diet remove processed foods remove like lower sugar that kind of thing just have a healthier diet um that can you know alleviate a lot of issues um exercise supports the gut um so all of these things that you're talking about are supportive to gut health but if you're not experiencing an improvement then we really need to treat the gut directly um, and work out what's happening directly and so if it's something like SIBO or gut dysbiosis they need focused attention so go back to those first line therapies that I talked about at the start of this um, live then you could try moving on to the second line therapies and see if they help you could certainly rule out SIBO gut dysbiosis as well if you've got the money to test if you you know you've got it in your budget to test it and I would really recommend um you know if you can't afford to do um, my course which is out at the moment uh live and five endo the foundations um listen to my episodes on endo belly um including the ones that are the supplements for bloating and causes of the endo belly because I've kind of listed some of the key ones but there are some other others um and I do like I said I do have first and second line therapies um, episodes. Uh, I think it's like two years old, maybe three years old, but just look for my episodes on the endo belly um, and start working your way through them. 
obviously, like I said, if you want a succinct protocol, um, then there's you, there's the course that I'm running at the moment or working with me one-on-one um, and kind of choose what works for you. So those are all the questions. Um, I've kind of answered four, five, six, about seven, eight questions within all of these answers. Um, like I said, I did get a lot of questions and I might try to do some individual reels on them, um, on the ones I didn't get to cover. Um, over the next like month or so, um, we'll see. Um, but hopefully you've been able to, if your answer wasn't direct, if your question wasn't directly answered, hopefully this has been helpful and has covered a lot. But I think the key takeaway here is it's not normally just the endo belly. It's not normally just endometriosis that's causing the endo belly. There's usually something going on with the gut. Try first and second line therapies first if you can, if you've got the budget, test with SIBO. I don't recommend treating SIBO straight away. Sorry, there's like dogs fighting outside and someone playing their music really loud um, in the car. So lots happening. And kids and kids screaming. Um, so yay. Um, I don't recommend treating SIBO straight away because it can often be very challenging physically, mentally, emotionally, financially taxing. So I always recommend that you get your you get your endo as under control as you can. Sometimes, you know, SIBO is worse than endo symptoms. So you might only be able to get to a certain point, but let's get you out of the kind of red zone. Let's get you out of the um, worst of it. Uh, let's do some first and second line therapies to build good foundations of the gut. That's going to make it easier for you to treat the SIBO anyway. Um, and then when you're in a good place, start with the SIBO. Because like I said, your SIBO treatment might take 12 months. And there are, you know, I, I've worked with people who are like, I'm ready. You know, I'm going to, let's do it. I'm like, okay, but this is, it's not easy to treat. You know, it often doesn't clear in, you know, couple of rounds, like, it can be a tough road and people don't quite realise. Um, and so I really want you to take that on board. You need to be in a good place to take on SIBO. And if you can just work on your endo and your gut foundations first, that's what I would recommend you do. Unless your SIBO is so bad that literally your days are unbearable, then we're going to have to work on that SIBO so you can function. right? But I wouldn't, for the most part, I do not recommend treating SIBO as your first port of call when you're managing endo and SIBO together. All right. I hope that was helpful, guys. I've nearly been talking for an hour. Um, and this is going to go up now. I'm just going to release this now and then uh, you can listen back to it. All right. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Bye. So that's it. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about what I do or read more on endometriosis and living well with it, um, you can head to my Instagram page, which is this underscore endolife. Um, you can head to my website which is www.thisendolife.com and you can also get um, a free guide to managing endometriosis naturally on my website Um, I've put the link in my show notes it's a beginner's guide to getting started and all of the areas that I um, have worked on to help reduce my endometriosis symptoms and pain and live well with endometriosis As always, if you like this show, please rate, review and or subscribe. It really, truly does help others to 
hear the podcast and hopefully will help them to live better with endometriosis. This episode was produced by The Pod Farm. Whether you're an established podcaster or just getting started, visit thepodfarm.com to see how they can help you go from an idea to a finished show that's ready to be heard by the world. Thank you.